0: We read God's word this morning in Matthew chapter 26, beginning at verse 17. Now the first day of the feast of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus, saying unto him, Where wilt thou that we prepare for thee to eat the Passover? And he said, Go into the city to such a man, and say unto him, The master saith, My time is at hand, I will keep the Passover at thy house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had appointed them, and they were and they made ready the Passover. Now when the even was come, he sat down with the twelve, and as they did eat, he said, Verily I say unto you, that one of you shall betray me. And they were exceeding sorrowful, and began every one of them to say unto him, Lord, is it I? And he answered and said, He that dippeth his hand with me in the dish, the same shall betray me. The Son of Man goeth as it is written of him, but woe unto that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It had been good for that man if he had not been born. Then Judas, which betrayed him, answered and said, Master, is it I? And he said unto him, Thou hast said. And as they were eating, Jesus took bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them saying, drink ye all of it. For this is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. But I say unto you, I will not drink henceforth of this fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And when they had sung in hymn, they went out into the Mount of Olives. Thus far we read God's word. It's on the basis of this passage and many others that we have the instruction of Lord's Day 29 of the Heidelberg Catechism, and we will include... This morning also question answer 80 of Lord's Day 30. So questions 78 through 80. Do then the bread and wine become the very body and blood of Christ? Not at all. But as the water in baptism is not changed into the blood of Christ, neither is the washing away of sin itself, "...being only a sign and confirmation thereof appointed of God, so the bread in the Lord's Supper is not changed into the very body of Christ, though agreeably to the nature and properties of sacraments, it is called the body of Christ Jesus. Why then doth Christ call the bread his body, and the cup his blood, or the new covenant in his blood, and Paul the communion of the body and blood of Christ?" Christ speaks thus not without great reason, namely, not only thereby to teach us that as bread and wine support this temporal life, so his crucified body and shed blood are the true meat and drink whereby our souls are fed to eternal life. But more especially by these visible signs and pledges to assure us that we are as really partakers of his true body and blood by the operation of the Holy Ghost, as we receive by the mouths of our bodies these holy signs in remembrance of him, and that all his sufferings and obedience are as certainly ours as if we had in our own person suffered and made satisfaction for our sins to God. What difference is there between the Lord's Supper and the Popish Mass? The Lord's Supper testifies to us that we have a full pardon of all sin by the only sacrifice of Jesus Christ, which he himself has once accomplished on the cross, and that we, by the Holy Ghost, are engrafted into Christ, who, according to his human nature, is now not on earth, but in heaven at the right hand of God, his Father, and will there be worshipped by us. But the Mass teaches that the living and dead have not the pardon of sins through the sufferings of Christ unless Christ is also daily offered for them by the priests and further that Christ is bodily under the form of bread and wine and therefore is to be worshipped in them so that the mass at bottom is nothing else than a denial of the one sacrifice and sufferings of Jesus Christ and an accursed idolatry. Within the broader church world, there are many different doctrinal and practical errors that exist. In other words, when we survey the broader church world around us, we find that there is much false doctrine in the church world at large. And on account of that, it becomes necessary that as churches who are committed to the truths of God's word we defend the truth of Scripture. It becomes necessary that we speak a word against those various false doctrines and errors that we find in the church world around us. But now what can happen is that as the church of Jesus Christ seeks to defend the truth, that at times we might be left with the impression that the church is only ever against this or against that. So that when there are polemics brought into the preaching or into our writings, we start to wonder, is the whole purpose of the church to stand opposed to this error and to be against that false doctrine? But we must recognize that anytime we are against some teaching, some false doctrine, some error, the reason for that is because we are for the truths of God's Word. We oppose these false doctrines because we embrace, we love, we are committed to the good news of the Gospel. That explains why the church takes a stance against so many errors. That's why, as churches, we take a stance against the whole teaching of fallen man having a free will. Why? Because we are for the good news that our God is sovereign in salvation. We take a stance against the teaching of uh, a universal atonement that Christ died for all men head for head. Why? Why? Because we're for the blessed truth that the death of Jesus Christ was a particular death and therefore efficacious for His people. We are against the error of the the federal vision. Why? Because we're for the, the blessed truth of justification by faith alone. And we could give many, many examples. But the one that we want to focus on this morning is that we are against the Roman Catholic Mass, their version of the Lord's Supper because we are emphatically for the Gospel of Jesus Christ and the good news that He has fully accomplished our salvation. That is the truth that we come to this morning as we come to Lord's Day 29 and the first part of Lord's Day 30. We are making our way through the Catechism's explanation of the sacraments. And if you look at the explanation of baptism, side by side with the explanation of the Lord's Supper, you find that they follow the same pattern in that both of them start with the sacrament itself, the meaning, the significance. Then they move to the relationship between the elements of each sacrament and the reality to which they point. And then finally, each concludes with a consideration of for whom is this sacrament. That's the structure that the Catechism follows when treating baptism. And now there's that same structure in treating the Lord's Supper. Lord's Day 28 gives us the significance, the meaning of the Lord's Supper. The second half of Lord's Day 30 will give the for whom, who may partake. Lord's Day 29 and question answer 80 as well teaches us the relationship between the elements, the bread and the wine, and the reality to which they point, namely the body and blood of Jesus Christ. And in looking at that, there is by necessity, there is a need for defending the truth of the gospel over against the heirs. And now there are many heirs, including the heirs of Lutheranism, the heirs of a man like Zwingli, but the main focus of the catechism, and rightly so, is on the teachings of the Roman Catholic Church with regards to the Lord's Supper and their version of it, that is, the Mass. And we want to see the clear contrast between the Roman Catholic presentation of this And the truth of Scripture, so that we see all the more clearly the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So, this morning we consider Lord's Day 29 as well as 30A, using as our theme Christ's presence in the supper. First, we'll look at his spiritual presence. Second, our partaking of him. And third, the blessed result, Christ's presence in the supper. His spiritual presence are partaking of him and the blessed result. Our Lord Jesus Christ is present in the Lord's Supper. But now, when we state that, we need to make very clear that from a negative point of view, that does not mean he's present physically or bodily. And we say that over against the Roman Catholic Church because that is indeed their teaching. And that's why... Question 78 is worded the way it is. Question 78 says, Do then the bread and wine become the very body and blood of Christ? And it's put that way because that's representative of the teachings of the Roman Catholic Church, that the bread and wine become the very body and blood of Christ. That is, according to them, when the priest blesses the elements, they are turned into, they change into, the physical body and blood of Jesus Christ. And now they would acknowledge that from an outward point of view, it still looks like bread, it still feels like bread, it still tastes like bread. That is, the external qualities, those remain unchanged, but the substance, the essence of it is now the body and blood of Jesus Christ. And understand that is indeed their view. It's important that as God's people, we recognize that these errors truly exist. That as a minister, I'm not making this stuff up. The, Roman, the, the catechism is not making a caricature of their view. And that becomes clear when they look, when we look at their own writings. So that if we look at the catechism of the Catholic Church, we find this statement, for example, quote... It is by the conversion of the bread and wine into Christ's body and blood that Christ becomes present in this sacrament, end quote. To quote from the Council of Trent, which is the, their creed that was made to counter the Reformed creeds and confessions that were coming out, the Council of Trent says this, quote, "...by the consecration of the bread and wine there takes place a change of the whole substance of the bread into the substance of the body of Christ our Lord, and of the whole substance of the wine into the substance of his blood. This change the Holy Catholic Church has fittingly and properly called transubstantiation, end quote. Now to back this up, the, the Roman Catholic Church appeals to the words of Jesus Christ when he instituted the Lord's Supper. In Matthew chapter 26, we read of that institution. And in verse 26, we read of Christ himself saying, Take, eat, this is my body. And the Catholic Church says, see? Christ himself says it. This is my body. What more proof could you ask for? I remember encountering that very argument when i was a college student interacting with a a friend a classmate talking about our different views and when we came to the lord's supper she said christ said this is my body don't you believe that he has the power to make that happen that he's physically bodily present now that we have an idea of what the Roman Catholic Church teaches, we need to see that it is contrary to Scripture. And it's contrary to the very passage that we read, namely Matthew 26 and the institution of the Lord's Supper. Because on the one hand, if you look at Matthew 26, it cannot be that Christ is physically present in the elements because even as he institutes it, he is standing there alive and well. And I believe even the youngest children here can see that that does not match. How can that bread in Christ's hand be his physical body when he is actually standing there alive and well holding on to that bread? And what is more... He has yet to be crucified. And that's relevant because what's communicated to us in the Lord's Supper is not just the body of Christ and the blood of Jesus Christ, but his body broken and his blood as it had been shed. That is, we partake of Christ crucified, and he had yet to be crucified, so he cannot be communicating to them his broken body nor his shed blood. That on the one hand, Christ is standing there, he's alive and well, On the other hand, the view of the Roman Catholic Church does not match Matthew 26 because if they insist on their literal interpretation, this is my body, therefore it must be his physical body, well, to insist on that means that Christ never gave his disciples wine. Because when he gets to that part of the Lord's Supper, what does he say? Verse 27, he took the cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink ye all of it. He gives them the cup. Drink this cup. And now we all recognize there's a figure of speech. He's talking about the contents inside of the cup. It's obvious to us, but the point is, it's not literally true that they were to drink the cup. They weren't to drink the the clay or the wood or whatever material that cup was made out of. There's a figure of speech here. And thus for the Roman Catholic Church to insist that when he says, this is my body, referring to the bread, for them to insist on a literal interpretation of that does not not match what follows when we come to the wine. So their view does not match Scripture. But now more importantly, their view does not do justice to the fact that Jesus Christ has a real human nature. And that's the truth that we are for from a positive point of view that makes our defense against the Roman Catholic Church necessary. Jesus Christ does indeed have a real, complete human nature. That's a clear teaching of Hebrews chapter 2, for example. Verse 14, "...for as much then as children are partakers of flesh and blood..." he also himself likewise took part of the same. And then again in verse 17, wherefore in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren. He's like us in all things. And that means like us, Jesus Christ can only be, according to his human nature, in one place at one time. It's true of each one of us for me to be here preaching for you this morning means I cannot be in my own congregation in Redlands California I had to come to a different location to a different place and so it is for the body of Christ for his human nature his human nature was confined and is confined to one place at one time and we know that according to his human nature He's in heaven. Yes, according to his divine nature, he's everywhere present, but his human nature is in heaven. That's the teaching of Acts 3, verse 21. And he shall send Jesus Christ, which before was preached unto you, whom the heaven must receive until the times of of restitution of all things. That is, until Christ returns. Christ is in heaven according to his human nature. And that means there's only one of two things that can be true when it comes to the Roman Catholic teaching. Either Christ is in fact in heaven according to his human nature and he is not physically present in the elements of the Lord's Supper or he is physically present in the elements of the Lord's Supper but he does not have a real human nature nature and now we see the seriousness now we are touching at the very foundation of the gospel of Jesus Christ because as lords day 6 taught us if Christ is going to save us if he is going to be our mediator he must be fully god and fully man and now if he's not fully man if he does not have a real complete human nature he is disqualified from being our mediator. He cannot accomplish our salvation. And all of this is to say that we are against the Roman Catholic Mass and their view of Christ's presence in the supper because we are for the good news of the Gospel and Christ's real humanity. But now having explained why we are against the Roman Catholic Church, We do need to understand from a positive point of view that our own view that Christ is indeed present, albeit spiritually. For when the Lord's Supper is administered, the Holy Spirit performs a work whereby He takes the body and blood of Christ and unites them to the elements, so that Christ is present. Not physically, not bodily, but really, truly, spiritually present. But then the Roman Catholic Church would say, well, what about those words? This is my body. And we would respond by saying, well, that's exactly how you need to understand those words, because those words are not meant to be understood literally, but sacramentally. Now what does that mean to understand those words sacramentally? It means that when, Christ, when we have a sacrament in Scripture that it belongs to the nature of a sacrament that the name of the reality to which it points is applied to the elements, to the thing that signifies it. So that the reality is the body and blood of Christ and it is applied to the elements the bread and the wine. That's what our catechism is getting at when it says what it does at the end of question and answer 78. The last two lines, we read this. I'll read the last three. So the bread in the Lord's Supper is not changed in the very body of Christ, though agreeably to the nature and properties of sacraments, it is called the body of Christ Jesus. The nature and property of sacraments is that the name of the reality is applied to the sign. That's true in baptism. The water of baptism is called in Scripture the washing of regeneration. It's called the washing away of sins. Not because the water becomes the blood of Christ... That's not what happens, and not even the Roman Catholic Church teaches that in baptism, the water actually becomes the blood of Jesus Christ. And there we see their inconsistency. They insist that the bread and the wine do, but then when we come to baptism, we see they're inconsistent. No one teaches that the water of baptism becomes the blood of Jesus Christ because we understand it sacramentally. Those terms, the washing of regeneration, the washing of way of sins, are applied to the water because the water points us to the reality. We see the same thing in the Old Testament. When we look at circumcision, for example, in circumcision, the Old Testament parallel to baptism, we see this same dynamic so that when in Genesis chapter 17, verse 10, we Read this. God saying to Abram, This is my covenant, which ye shall keep between me and you and thy seed after thee. Every man child among you shall be circumcised. Notice what God is saying there. This is my covenant, namely circumcision. And we say, what? Really? Circumcision is the covenant? No, We just need to keep reading. We get to verse 11, and we have an explanation. And ye shall circumcise the flesh of your foreskin, and it, circumcision, shall be a token of the covenant between me and you. In verse 10, circumcision is called God's covenant. And in verse 11, we read it's a token of the covenant. And verse 10 is put so strongly because we understand that language, not literally, but sacramentally. The name of the reality, God's covenant, is applied to the sign, namely circumcision. And now when we come to Matthew 26 and the Lord's Supper, we are simply being consistent then. With circumcision, with baptism, the same now applies to those words. This is my body. Christ is applying the name of the reality, His body, His broken body, to the sign because we have a sacrament. So that's our view. But now before we move on to how we partake of Christ in the Lord's Supper, still in the first point, we need to underscore the importance of having a right understanding and a right view. And that importance comes out when we consider the implications of the Roman Catholic view and the Roman Catholic Mass and the errors that are a part of it. And that's especially what question and answer 80 of the Heidelberg Catechism does for us. On the one hand, the Roman Catholic Mass and their whole teaching leads to a worship of the elements themselves. That's what the Catechism is getting at towards the end of Answer 80 when it says this, the second half of the question, but the Mass teaches that the living and dead have not the pardon of sins through the sufferings of Christ unless Christ is also daily offered for them by the priest. We'll come back to that language in a moment. But now this, and further... That Christ is bodily under the form of bread and wine and therefore is to be worshipped in them. And now again, the catechism is not making a character of their view. The Catholic catechism itself is this. Quote, In the liturgy of the Mass, we express our faith in the real presence of Christ under the species of bread and wine by, among other things, genuflecting or bowing deeply as a sign of adoration of the Lord. End quote. They worship the elements. And the problem with this is this is idolatry. We are to worship God as he commands. And this is over against the the right worship of God. There's a reason the catechism ends so forcefully and strongly at the very end of answer 80 it says so that the mass at bottom is nothing else than a denial of the one sacrifice and sufferings of Jesus Christ and an accursed idolatry no doubt you've heard that language before and perhaps you've wondered why does the catechism make such a strong statement that the Roman Catholic mass is an accursed idolatry well because the Roman Catholic church says you are to bow down you are to genuflect to use their language, the elements, the bread and the wine. And we reject that as idolatry, whether you view it as a violation of the first commandment, you're worshiping bread, or a violation of the second commandment, you're trying to worship Christ through the bread. Either way, it's sinful. And we stand opposed to that because we are for the right worship of our God. God tells us in His Word how He is to be worshipped, and we are to worship Him accordingly. And that includes worshipping Christ as the ascended Lord. That's the point of the Catechism when it says what it does in the first part of question 80. Fourth line down, who according to His human nature is now not on earth but in heaven at the right hand of God his Father and will there be worshipped. Christ is our exalted Lord. He is sitting at God's right hand as king and ruler over all and we are to worship him accordingly. Worship him as the one who is in heaven now, not by trying to drag him back down to this earth, not by trying to worship him through a piece of bread, but worshiping him as our exalted king. That's what we're for. And thus we oppose the Roman Catholic teaching of Christ's physical presence and the need then to worship the elements So that's one of two implications that underscores the importance of this stance against the Roman Catholic Church. Now the second clear implication is that the Roman Catholic Mass, then, is a denial of the once-for-all sacrifice of Jesus Christ. For according to the Roman Catholic Church, when the priest goes through his ceremony, that's a part of the Mass, there is a re-sacrificing of Jesus Christ. He takes that bread, and remember, according to them, he is physically, he's bodily present, and the priest breaks that bread. He is re-sacrificing Jesus Christ. And again, I'm not making this up. The Catholic Catechism says this, about the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Quote, The sacrifice of Christ and the sacrifice of the Eucharist are one single sacrifice. The victim is one and the same. The same now offers through the ministry of the priest who then offered himself on the cross. Only the manner of offering is different. End quote. There is an offering of Jesus Christ according to their very own words. And what is even worse is that they go so far as to say this is a part of the payment for sin. There's an atonement that's taking place here. Quote, As sacrifice, the Eucharist is also offered in reparation of the sins of the living and the dead to obtain spiritual or temporal benefits from God. End quote. In the Roman Catholic Mass, they say, There is a payment for sin being made. And we reject that. Because it is a denial of the one sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And that's the point of the catechism. Right in the middle of question and answer 80. But the mass teaches that the living and dead have not the pardon of sins through the sufferings of Christ, unless Christ is also daily offered for them by the priests and what follows. For them, He has to be offered daily. And not just daily, but hundreds of times of days, all throughout the whole world, If there's going to be a payment for sin. And we say, no. That's contrary to Scripture. Because when Christ was on the cross... After suffering God's wrath those three hours, he said, it is finished. It's all paid for. It's done. And the Roman Catholic Church says, it's not finished. It has to happen again and again and again. Unless we reject that false teaching. Because we are for because we embrace, because we love the truth of the once and for all sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Even as it's taught in Scripture. As we read in the book of Hebrews, chapter 7, verse 27. Speaking of Christ, who needeth not daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifice, first for his own sins, and then for the people's For this He did once when He offered up Himself. Same thing in Hebrews 9, verse 28. So Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many. And unto them that look for Him shall He appear the second time without sin unto salvation. That's the good news of the Gospel. That there is a full and complete payment. So that when as God's sinful people we come to Him saying, Lord, forgive us. There is a complete pardon. And it's because we are for that truth. Because we love that truth. We stand opposed to the whole notion of the Roman Catholic Mass. But now having considered Christ's presence we now also need to see how we partake of him and really what we partake of and that's what we want to consider in the second point of this morning's sermon first of all how we partake of him and we partake of him by faith and we say that over against the roman catholic church which says that partaking of christ is a matter of using your physical mouth so that for the roman catholic church as long as you have a mouth and a working digestive system, you can partake of Jesus Christ. And now to be sure, they would speak of faith, but when you read their writings, it becomes clear it's not faith in order to receive Jesus Christ. It's not faith as the instrument whereby we receive Jesus Christ. But the role of faith for the Roman Catholic Church is simply, well, you need faith to believe that Christ is in fact present physically again i quote from their writings no i don't did not write that one down but you will have to trust me there that it's just a matter of them believing that christ is physically present and that means that because it's simply partaking by your mouth even a reprobate unbeliever can partake of jesus christ But all of that is contrary to Scripture because we do not partake of Christ by our physical mouths, but we partake of Christ by faith, through the work of the Holy Spirit. And that's really something that's emphasized more in the previous Lord's Day. For example, in question and answer 76, we read this, "'What is it then to eat the crucified body and drink the shed blood of Christ?' The answer, it is not only to embrace with a believing heart all the sufferings and death of Christ and thereby to obtain the pardon of sin and life eternal, but also besides that to become more and more united to his sacred body by the Holy Ghost who dwells both in Christ and in us. Speaks of the role of the Holy Spirit because he is the one who unites the body and blood of Jesus Christ to the elements so that Christ is present from a spiritual point of view. Only the Holy Spirit can perform that wonder. And we then receive Jesus Christ by means of faith so that our Belgian Confession speaks of faith as the hand of the soul whereby we receive Jesus Christ. And as the the mouth of the soul, whereby we partake of Him. And that means only those who've been given the gift of faith, only those who believe in Jesus Christ can partake of Him. But now having considered very briefly how we partake of Jesus Christ, in light of what we read in Lord's Day 29, the focus of this second point is really going to be on of what do we partake? Because this is not just a physical meal. If that's all it was there would be no more value to the Lord's Supper than the meal that we ate for breakfast this morning. If Christ is simply physically present well that does not profit me beyond my physical body. But instead, we need spiritual nourishment. And that's what we receive because Christ is spiritually present. And the truth of Scripture is that in the Lord's Supper, we are partaking of Christ Himself. And of all the the spiritual blessings that He has earned for us, we're partaking of His saving work on our behalf. And that's the point of the catechism at the end of Answer 79, and it summarizes in two words what we partake of in the Lord's Supper. At the end of Answer 79, we read this, and that all his sufferings, there's the first word, and obedience, there's the second, are as certainly ours as if we had in our own persons suffered and made satisfaction for our sins to God. First of all, we partake of His suffering. And now when we think of the suffering of Jesus Christ, no doubt the first passage that comes to our minds is Isaiah 53, which speaks of Jesus Christ as that suffering servant. And while it's true that He suffered at the hands of men, that is not the the main part of His suffering. It is a part of it. Isaiah 53, verse 3 says, He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. We hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. So there was the reproach, there was the mockery, there was the rejection of men. But that's not the main thing. The main thing is his suffering at the hand of God himself, verses 4 and 5 of Isaiah 53. Surely He hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem Him stricken and smitten of God and afflicted. But He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisements of our peace was upon Him and with His stripes we are healed. The point of those verses is that Jesus Christ became our sin bearer so that our iniquity our transgressions our sins were placed upon him with the result that then that god then smote him bruised him with the result that God wounded him, pouring out his wrath upon his own beloved Son, the one who had been in the bosom of the Father from all eternity, the object of God's love, his only begotten Son, his natural and eternal Son. It was the Son of God who endured all this on account of of our sins. He suffered. It's a part of His saving work. But that's not the whole of His saving work. Because the Catechism speaks not only of His suffering, but it adds also His obedience. Because that too is a, a part of it, that Christ came into this world to live a perfect life of obedience, to fulfill all righteousness to live a life in complete and perfect harmony to God's commandments. And that makes them very different than us. Because as Isaiah 53 verse 6 reminds us, we are like sheep who've gone astray. Verse 6, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. Our shepherd comes to us and says, walk on this path that leads to green pastures. Our shepherd comes to us and says, come this way to the still waters where you will receive refreshment. He he. He sets before us how we are to live our lives. And what do we do in response? We say, No. I'm not going to go down that path, no matter how good it is for me spiritually. But instead, we go astray, we wander, and we expose ourselves to the dangers of walking in that dark valley. That's our sinfulness. And thus, what a contrast to the perfect obedience of Jesus Christ. Who walked down the path that God set before him. Who lived a life of perfect obedience. Even though that path did not lead to green mountain pastures. It did not lead to still waters. But it led to the cross. The Father said to the Son, This is the path that you must walk. The path that leads to the altar. To the place of slaughter where you must lay down your life. And Jesus Christ said... I will walk that path. I will not go astray. And he did indeed walk it. He lived a life of perfect obedience. That's a part of his saving work so that his saving work includes both his suffering and his obedience. But now to tie it back to the overall point we're making, the point of the catechism is that we are now partakers of both his suffering and his obedience. The end of 79, and that all of his sufferings and obedience are as certainly ours as if we had in our own persons suffered and made satisfaction for our sins to God. So the point is, Christ did this for us. not for his own sake. There was no sin on him that he needed to pay for. He didn't need to earn eternal life, but he did this for us. That's the point he makes in Matthew 26 that we read earlier. Matthew chapter 26, verse 28, we read, For this is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many, for the remission of sins, the point being for his people. He did it on our behalf so that we become partakers of that. Notice how strongly the catechism puts this. As if we had in our own persons suffered and made satisfaction for our sins to God. So that when Christ's obedience and suffering are made ours by faith, it's as though I went to the cross to die the death that I deserved. And somehow, some way, endured the wrath of God and lived to tell about it. So that all the sins are paid for. They're all gone. It was more Christ's obedience is made ours so that when God looks upon us, He sees us as those who never once went astray think about that beloved with the christ's obedience made yours god looks upon you as never having never once committed that besetting sin that we've committed a thousand times over never once having fallen into a secret sin a sin that i didn't even know i committed because i'm so blind to my own sinfulness That's the good news of the gospel. And that's the good news that's set before us visibly when we partake of the Lord's Supper. And it's because of this good news that we reject the whole idea of the Roman Catholic Church. Think of these astounding blessings we're talking about. Christ's obedience, Christ's suffering made ours. A priest cannot put that into your mouth. That's not something you put on a platter and pass around the congregation. But that's only something that the Spirit of Christ can give to us. And it's something we can receive only by faith. It's because we're for that glorious truth that we are against the Roman Catholic Mass and everything included in it. And that includes, the good news includes the blessed result of partaking of Jesus Christ. And the blessed result comes out in question and answer 79 especially. And there are two things that are taught here. Why then doth Christ call the bread his body and the cup his blood or the new covenant in his blood and Paul the communion of the body and blood of Christ? Christ speaks not thus without great reason, namely, not only, here's the first thing, thereby to teach us that as bread and wine support this temporal life, so his crucified body and shed blood are the true meat and drink whereby our souls are fed to eternal life. The first blessed result is just that we are fed. And the catechism here makes a comparison between our physical lives and our spiritual lives. Each one of us has a physical life, our physical bodies, and we need nourishment. We need food and water, otherwise we will grow weak physically. And when we receive that bread, water, physical nourishment, then we're strengthened according to our physical bodies. The catechism takes that idea and now parallels it to the truth of our spiritual lives. Because by God's grace, we've been given new life in Jesus Christ. But now if that life, if our souls do not receive spiritual nourishment, we're going to grow weak. We'll become quite feeble. So that when the trials of life come, rather than responding by faith, instead, I respond by doubting God's love. I respond by getting angry at him, even if I would never acknowledge it in words. And when the temptations come, rather than resisting them, we give in to them. We go astray. That's what happens when we become spiritually weak, when we are not being nourished. And that underscores the importance then of receiving this nourishment because it's when we partake of Christ and His sacrifice that we are fed spiritually. We're given the forgiving grace that all of our sins are washed away. We're given transforming grace to, to make a small beginning in a new life of godliness. We're given the grace to respond the right way to those trials so that we recognize that even in this, my Father loves me. That's the blessed result, first of all. We are fed by partaking of Christ. And second, we're assured. That's the second half of answer 79 where we left off in the middle, but more especially, here's the second thing, here's the point, by these visible signs and pledges to assure us that we are as really partakers of his true body and blood, by the operation of the Holy Ghost, as we receive by the mouths of our bodies these holy signs in remembrance of him. The sacrament gives us assurance. And the Catechism has a very helpful explanation of how that assurance works, and that for the child of God, by faith, he says as certainly as I have this piece of bread in my hand, and as certainly as I can taste that bread in my mouth, and as certainly as I know that bread went down into my body and is providing physical nourishment for my body, I can be just as confident by faith that Christ died for me (coughs) and that by his body and blood, he now gives me eternal life and note the word me. This is a personal assurance that comes to us in the Lord's Supper. And what an assurance it is. Because knowing that Jesus Christ died for me, that we are partakers of His flesh and blood. We can then say with the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 8 verse 34, who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen again, who is, at, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. Though the devil brings his accusations, though my conscience accuses me, who can condemn me? That's the expression of assurance, knowing that Christ died for me. And that assurance is expressed in verses 35 and following. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. So the blessed result is that we are given that assurance. Now as those who are thus fed and assured... We are then to go forth in a life of thankfulness and service to this God out of gratitude for that blessed gospel that we are for, that we love, that we are committed to the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ. Amen.